Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, February 14th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim continues the history of Epcot's Communicore attractions. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that any couch can be a sofa bed if you just forgot your spouse on Valentine's Day. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len. Speaking of sofa beds, I remember we just recently, the two of us, we went to the inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French decor at the- I went back this weekend, yeah. Did you really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I had like a couple of days in New York before I you know, was in Florida, but yeah, I went back with Laurel. It was great. Cool. All right. So did you linger in front of the display for The Sofa, A Moral Tale? I did, actually. Oh, wow. Cool. All right. Well, to explain what Len's talking about, there's a story from 1742. They bring it into this play because in Beauty and the Beast, you have people who are turned into objects who, again, the only way they're transformed back is an act of true love. And this story, the Asofa, a moral tale, pretty much has the same gimmick that a man is turned into a sofa. His soul is trapped inside of the sofa. And the only way his curse will be lifted is if while he's a sofa, he, he views an act of, of true love. Right. I would honestly feel bad if the, the case of if a sofa got trapped here in, in Nancy and my house, you know, and waited for that thing. Cause to be honest, they, they choked to death on cat hair first. <laughs> When it says true love, and that could be the love between a man and a woman or a man and a deep dish pizza, Jim, right? There you did go. It, 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 I'm not sure that the <laughs> – right, because there are times when, when I'm by myself here in Florida, Jim, and, yep. and you know, yeah. and the, the, pizza, the pizza is the next best thing. <laughs> there we go. The thing that I love about that particular painting, though, the, uh, the one from the 18th century mm – -hmm at the Met is all of the symbolism that is in the painting. So I, I believe in the foreground of that painting, it's the sofa and then a, a suitor mm -hmm. and the woman that he's going after on mm -hmm. the couch. But then above that is like, there's a painting in the painting above the couch and it's like Mars and Venus. Is that it? There you go. There's a ton of stuff going on in that. It's great. It's great. Correct me if I'm wrong. We are in the last few weeks of that exhibit before it heads over to London. I think it. I think it is. Yeah, and there was there was a pretty decent line this past weekend when we went to get in. So Laurel and I got got to the Met like right at ten o'clock, and there was already a good twenty five minute line to get through it. So I mean, it's super popular. I would expect the Met to to do other things. Also, remind me to talk about uh, our friend Bethany Bemis at the end of this conversation. But the uh, the other thing that people really like, Jim, were Disney's uh, Walt himself, his fascination with miniatures. Oh yeah, yeah, those were really interesting to see too. Yeah. Checked on the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art site. And yes, in fact, this exhibit ends on Sunday, March 6th. Yeah, so you got a couple more weeks to get there, folks. If you're in the area, go ahead and do it. It's fabulous. Mm -hmm. Also, we mentioned our friend Bethany Bemis mm -hmm. from the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Mm -hmm. Got in contact with Bethany last week, and the Smithsonian is asking people to send in their photos of them in Disney parks. I saw that. So let's tweet out. Uh, let's tweet out that URL, Jim, from both of our accounts again uh, okay. once the show lands. Mm -hmm. And folks, yeah, if you've got any any great family photos of you, your family in a Disney domestic Disney theme park, mm -hmm. so Disneyland, Walt Disney World, go ahead and send those into the Smithsonian. That's to prepare for an upcoming exhibit in 2023. Of course, we know what it is. Of course, we can't say yet, but uh, it's going to be a blast. It'll be a lot of fun. Cool, cool. 
All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Ward Seaster, Frank Joseph, and Derek Michaud. And to longtime subscribers, Dan at Smoky Mountain Magic, T.D. Anderson, and Nicholas Steinoff. Hey, Nick. Jim, these are the folks getting ready to play the stunt doubles for popular topiary at the upcoming Epcot Flower and Garden Festival. So when a major display like Kermit the Frog has to go backstage for touch-up, these folks throw on Bermuda grass leggings and stand up on stage to keep the show going. They say every topiary has its own character and miracle Grow is in excellent conditioner. True story. A little concerned about people sitting on stage with others coming at them with pinking shears. <laughs> Occupational hazard, Jim. Occupational hazard. OSHA's four. Okay. All right, let's do the news, Jim. We got tons of news this week. Mm-hmm. And the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, uh, first things first, Disney announced a six-week delay to the launch of the Disney Wish Cruise. And this doesn't affect our cruise, which we are going on September 23rd to the 26th. So that's still good, but it does affect the first six weeks of sailings. My understanding is it is a lift and move for the first two. So the inaugural cruise, the people mm-hmm. who booked the inaugural cruise will still be on the inaugural cruise just six weeks later. Mm-hmm. And then there's a DVC cruise that is also a lift and ship for six weeks after that. The other 10 cruises got canceled. And actually, Jim, that was my, uh, one of them. The July 18th was actually my first trip on the, on the wish. Oh dear. I got cruise, so I got to reschedule that. Okay. But that does mean that the, uh, our, our dates for the Disney dish on the Disney wish September 23rd to the 26th, mm-hmm. is now closer to being the initial launch. So that's good. No, that's I agree. Fun. I agree. We get to live out that Titanic moment of, you can still smell the fresh paint. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right, Jim. In, uh, in other news, there was an earnings call this week with Disney, and Bob Chapek said, among other things, that further capacity increases are being limited by restaurant staffing and live entertainment constraints. Now, that's something we've been saying for a while. So, you know, every show should begin mm-hmm. with a round of self-congratulations. But we've got a number of emails this week, uh, including one from Ryan and Kim in Houston, about the lack of resort availability in the fall. And I think this staffing shortage is what's keeping large chunks of resorts closed as well, because Disney doesn't want to sell hotel rooms to people who can't get into the parks, right? You're not wrong. Yeah. Also, that probably means if restaurant capacity is limited, it means we're not likely to see the return of the Disney dining plan anytime soon because nope. you're not going to sell dining plans to people who don't have places to eat, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the other interesting thing that I that I noted in Chapek's comments were that somewhere between a third and a half of guests are purchasing Genie Plus and or individual Lightning Lane. How many months now? You know, lightning- Since October. So October to November, November, summer, December, January. Not okay. quite January, February. So four months? Yeah. All right. I would definitely want to take a poke at that number. Yeah. They've got four months worth of data. So, okay. If he, he's walking that out to the financial community, he must be confident in those numbers. Yeah. Fair. The thing that I'm interested there is this. Remember when FastPass was in use, right? Mm-hmm. So between 75 and 80% of, the, of a ride's capacity was allocated to FastPass. And what that did is drove up lines at the standby mm-hmm. uh, lines, right? It drove up wait times at the standby lines. Mm-hmm. And so when Disney introduced Genie Plus, it was, you know, touted as a way to manage weights at popular attractions, right? Mm-hmm. And an alternative to it. By charging people for things, the thinking went, fewer people would buy it. Like only those people who really, really hated waiting in lines would uh, would buy it. 
mm-hmm. and then the, consequently the standby lines would be shorter than they were with FastPass Plus. If you're hitting 50%, though, you're awfully close to the 75 to 80% number that we had with FastPass. Mm. And so if, you know, if Genie and individual lighting lanes get to the same ratio, you know, if 75% of the people going into the parks buy Genie and individual lightning lane, sorry, Genie Plus and individual lightning lane, then we're basically back at where we were three years ago with FastPass Plus, but now it just costs money. Yeah. And if that's what they were going for, right? If that was literally it, mm-hmm. they could have just said, hey, FastPass Plus is $15 from now on and saved you know, a ton of money in development. I'm, I'm not sure where we go from there. One, I mean, one option, obviously, is they could just increase, keep increasing the price to yeah. keep the usage of Genie Plus and individual lightning lane mm-hmm. at around 30, you know, 30, 35%. Just in the past week or so, we had that price increase for Amazon Prime. Yeah, it was twenty bucks or whatever. Twenty bucks. So whatever. Yeah. I mean, I just got they they could it could go. It was one hundred and thirty nine now, right? Yes. Yes. It could go to two hundred dollars, and I wouldn't care. Honest. I mean, honest to God, I don't know what the upper limit is on what I would pay for Mm -hmm. for uh, Amazon Prime a year. I definitely two hundred bucks. Yeah, three hundred almost certainly. Four ninety nine. I might start thinking about it, Mm -hmm. but. I love some Amazon Prime. Anyway, uh, we're getting off topic. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do some listener questions. Here's one from Becky in the UK, uh, who starts off with, thanks for all the brilliant content you guys produce. Oh. I think this was for someone else, Jim. Sure. <laughs> Very true. But let's, we'll keep going, keep going, keep going. We'll keep going yeah. uh, we're hopefully going to Walt Disney World in April after having two trips postponed. Hmm. We'll be traveling with our almost five-year-old daughter and staying on property. We've been twice before, and we're huge FastPass Plus maximizers. As an obsessive Disney trip planner, I'm a bit concerned about our upcoming trip due to uncertainty around Genie Plus and individual Lightning Lane. Will we be okay with a touring plan in early entry, or do we need to buy into Genie Plus and individual Lightning Lanes to now have a good trip and see and do everything? The cost of this trip will be at least double the cost of our 2019 trip due to the lack of Disney discounts offered to UK guests and the cost of adding Genie Plus on for our length of stay is another $400. All right. Thank you, Becky, for sending this in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So two things make this question interesting. One is that Becky's traveling in April and Easter is really late this year. So Becky can still run into spring break crowds because Easter is April 17th. Uh, And then the second question that I had uh, is whether Becky and her spouse will be going on any thrill rides individually without their daughter. So if they've got a five-year-old, does the five-year-old really want to go on Rise of the Resistance? So I'll break it down both ways. Okay. In uh, January, Jim, you and I had our own Becky on the show, Becky Gandalon, we who go. went over which Genie Plus and individual Lightning Lane attractions saved the most time in line. So for individual Lightning Lanes, uh, our Becky thought it was these. Uh, Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, Rise of the Resistance, Frozen Ever After, Flight of Passage, and Seven Dwarves Mine Train. Those are the most useful ones. And a good way of thinking about whether to buy an individual Lightning Lane is how much it's going to cost you for every hour you're saving. And that's good because a decent ballpark estimate is that you're spending around $15 an hour just to be in the parks. So anything that costs you less than $15 for every hour you save is a good deal. And based on that, individual lightning lane would make sense for Remy, Rise, Frozen, Flood of Passage, and Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, but not Runaway Railway, Space Mountain, or Everest. Now, of course, Jim, you won't need individual lightning lanes for all of those if you arrive early and head to one of them first thing in the morning. The tricky part will be Epcot because you've got both Remy and 
Frozen Ever After. Mm-hmm. But what I'd do there, and Jim, correct me if I'm wrong here, I'd go to Remy first thing, get get that out of the way, and then head on over to Frozen After Ever After and see what the line is like there. And then I would decide whether to buy the individual anyway. Also, don't we see a significant drop in the wait time for Frozen Ever After as we head into the afternoon, evening? I mean, as the crowds disperse and people head for dinner, that sort of thing? Or Yeah, I mean, very, very late it would be. The problem is, mm-hmm. uh, is that Epcot's big. And if you're not directly at Norway Mm. and you have to walk over there, it could be 20 minutes. True. And it's 20 minutes of walking plus X number of minutes going back to wherever you need to go after your ride. Mm. And at that point, you know, you've spent 30 or 40 minutes walking. Did you even save 30 or 40 minutes in line? Excellent point. Okay. That's That's the tricky part there. And that's what we see too with the utility of evening or extended evening theme park hours in Mm -hmm. Epcot. Yeah, it's great that there's no one in the park Mm -hmm. for two hours, but if every ride is is a 15 minute walk from another, (laughs) right? And they're not, but right. It limits how many things you could get done, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very true. As for Genie Plus, Becky, because you're going during a busier time of the year and we know that up to half the park guests are going to be using it, the standby lines are likely to be longer. So that probably makes sense, but I wouldn't buy it for every day of your trip. What I'd do is I'd buy it for the first day you're at the Magic Kingdom or the studios, whichever one of those two you go to first. And I would make that one of your first in-park days and then see how it goes. If you think it's useful, then try at another park and maybe um, Animal Kingdom. So Magic Kingdom, studios, and Animal Kingdom. Um, The other thing I would say is don't forget to enter your Genie Plus uh, return times into your Turing plan because the software will optimize around those return times now. And I'm working on some extra code now to make that even better. And it looks like with just a couple of key Genie Plus reservations, you can get most of your wait times under 25 minutes. Wow. Maybe with one wait of like 45 minutes on a busy day. And then that's where you can decide whether it's worth spending the $48 a day on Genie Plus. Hmm. Also, uh, UK Becky, if you want to talk to our Becky about this, just let me know. <laughs> okay. All right. Meeting in from the a, uh, I mean, this is, uh, we've just got a bunch of uh, listener emails about, uh, about Genie Plus. Mm-hmm. Here's one from an, an anonymous listener who we're going to call Gene, mm-hmm. uh, who says, on last week's episode, you were talking about the ratio of lightning lanes versus standby line that are moved forward at the merge point. When I was a cast member, we had specific guidelines for this based on how busy the park was going to be. Very busy days were called phase four and would push at least 30 people from the FastPass line, and then only a couple from standby. Phases were a park-wide determination, and our managers would let us know what phase we were in. It sounds like Lightning Lane uses something close to this ratio. Yeah, I'd be shocked if they were Hmm. doing anything different. Um, It's unfortunate that they're doing this because it really slows down the standby line, even if there aren't a ton of people in line. I also speculate that because wait times go up, more guests are inclined to buy Lightning Lane, now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go open the Cinnabon store. <laughs> Do you get the reference? Do you know I, what it I, is? I mean, I'm sorry, I don't. What? It's uh, uh, Gene is Saul Goodman in uh, Better Call Saul. So when he uh, when he uh, goes into hiding, mm-hmm. he becomes Gene and runs a uh, he's a manager of a Cinnabon store. And I mentioned that because there was a great interview with uh, Bob Odenkirk yesterday in the New York Times. I saw that. I saw yeah, that. Yeah. Really great. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was funny because they were the New York Times was was trying to describe what it was like filming the last couple days mm-hmm. of Better Call Saul, but they couldn't give away any spoilers. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm with some people in a house in the American Southwest. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> How much vaguer can we make this? Exactly. It was like, like, you know, Bob Odenkirk with these really, really specific memories. Mm-hmm. And then like, yeah, uh, you know, and then we headed West. <laughs> okay. 
Anyway, all right. Uh, more listener stuff. Our friends at WDW Magic reported on a Disney survey that asks this interesting question about Epcot. How would you rate your overall experience with Harmonious compared to your overall experience with Illuminations, Reflections of Earth? Would you say that Harmonious was better, about the same, or worse? And Jim, let me just say, I have I have rarely heard of a more interesting Disney survey question Ooh, than this. Yes. And let me just say, too, Disney already knows the answer, right? Mm-hmm. All they have to do is compare survey results, right? Yep, yep, yep. So I went back and I looked at our survey results from, from touringplans.com and the unofficial guide. And, and here's what I've got. And remember, Jim, we break these down into six demographic groups, right? Mm-hmm. Preschoolers, grade schoolers, teens, young adults, the over 30 set, and then senior citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Reflections of Earth got 3.8 stars out of 5 from preschoolers, 4.2 from grade schoolers, 4.3 from teens, 4.4 from young adults, 4.4 from over 30s, and 4.5 from seniors. And all any anything around 4.5 is really good. Mm-hmm. Anything above 4 is, is basically above average. Mm-hmm. So Reflections of Earth, except for preschoolers, was at, above average to very good for every demographic. Epcot Forever was lower for every single category, mm-hmm. uh, never higher than 4.1. And so every group rated it either 4.0 or 4.1. Mm-hmm. Harmonious actually gets higher ratings from preschoolers and grade schoolers. Um, so 4.2 stars and 4.3 stars for uh, preschoolers and grade schoolers. And then we, but the, the issue that we run into there is that so few guests are sending in surveys about Harmonious that the margin of error that we have for those numbers is pretty wide. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm confident saying that, yeah, preschoolers like Harmonious better than Reflections of Earth, but that's about it. But we can actually say the opposite. We can mm-hmm. say that definitely young adults over 30s and seniors mm-hmm. absolutely like Reflections of Earth more than Harmonious. Like the numbers are pretty clear on that. So at this point, Disney's got to know that, yeah, maybe preschoolers like Harmonious better, but the people making the decisions, mm-hmm. right? The young adults, the over 30s, the seniors, the people who are making the decisions about where to go and what to see. And more importantly, Jim, the people who are spending the money yep. don't like Harmonious as much as Reflections of Earth, right? Yeah. And that prevents you from getting that second bite of the apple. The notion that people who would go to see it and then say tail end of their trip, return to Epcot for dinner, but also linger to see that show yet again. So while I was looking at this, um, somebody asked about Wishes, mm-hmm. Happily Ever After, and Enchantment. And so I pulled up those numbers too. Mm-hmm. And again, for Wishes and Happily Ever After, for each demographic group, we've got thousands mm-hmm. of surveys, many thousands. Like in, uh, I think for, uh, for like uh, Wishes and Happily Ever After, for like adults, the over 30 group, we've got 11,000 survey results. Mm-hmm. So our, the, the margin of error for those numbers is literally like one or two hundredths of a point. If I say, for example, that Wishes and Happily Ever After get a 4.75 rating from the over 30 group, it's 4.75 plus or minus like one hundredth of a point. Mm. Our, our, our confidence intervals are very, very tight there. Mm. And what we can say, Jim, when we look at Wishes, Happily Ever After and Enchantment mm. is that Wishes was the most beloved nighttime show that Disney's ever done and Happily Ever After is right up there with it. Mm-hmm. Every age group rated it at least four and a half stars. The grade schoolers, the teens, the young adults, and the over 30s give it like four and three quarter stars or higher, right? And that's about as good as you can get. That's approaching like Rise of the Resistance 
level ratings, right? As, as good as you're going to get for any nighttime show, right? Mm-hmm. But when we look at like Enchantment, the only thing we can say about that is, okay, maybe some preschoolers like it better, mm-hmm. but every other age group rates Enchantment somewhere between four-tenths and three-quarters of a point worse than Wishes and Happily Ever After. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's clear to me, Jim, that anyone who's smart enough to graduate kindergarten mm-hmm. thinks the other shows were better. <laughs> and let's not overlook the obvious. You know, when, when you're four and five, you haven't actually seen wishes. You haven't even actually seen. Yeah, you, you don't know. know. Yeah, you don't know. All right. So I'll add, Jim, that I spoke with an insider this week about other surveys, and they added this. Mm-hmm. Survey results for Genie, so the trip planning service, mm-hmm. have been disastrous. Mm-hmm. That, By the way, this is a quote. Far below the lowest expectations, alarm mm-hmm. bells are ringing loudly. So, Jim, yep. setting that aside, mm-hmm. with the failure of Rivers of Light, mm-hmm. this means Disney's now 0 for 3 on its latest round of nighttime events. Where do they go from here? The thing that's particularly concerning to the folks at Walt Disney Entertainment is they spent an awful lot of money developing Harmonious. Right. And it's only been running 19 weeks at this point, uh, not even a full five months. And they themselves commissioned the survey lens because they're looking for money now to overhaul the show. In Canto. In Canto. Well, so interesting you say that because (laughs) think about this. Just yesterday during the earnings call, Bob Chapek referred to Encanto not as an Academy Award nominated film, but the company's next new franchise. All right. Yes. Look for them to lean into Encanto in a big way. And what's interesting about Harmonious, again, over 23 minute long show. The belief now is, first and foremost, they have to change the end, which ends with a ballad. Yeah, it's flat. Yeah. What's the song? Someday, uh, which was originally written for Hunchback, uh, which was released in theaters back in June of 96. Okay, hold on. Um, uh, a song no one likes about a, uh, in, from a movie no one saw? Well, no, it gets better, Len, because <laughs> okay. Someday was actually cut from Hunchback because it was determined to be too downbeat. <laughs> they actually replaced it in that movie. Uh, Stephen Schwartz and Alan Menken wrote another ballad called God Bless the Outcast. So it's a song no one heard about a movie no one watched. There we go. <laughs> wow. That's a decision. All right. You got to remember that the story that's come out consistently about Harmonious is they had an entirely different show developed. Bob Chapek came in and said, this is nice, but people like concerts. People like, you know, couldn't we do a Disney highlight show? And so, you know, the notion was that that's what they did. They, they put together Mulan, you know, a brave, you know, Beauty and the Beast, that sort of thing. So right now, what they're hoping... Once they get the survey results back is they can then go to the resort and go, okay, this is what the survey is saying. We need to fix the show. We've identified the area we need to address, which is the show's finale. We now have Encanto, you know, which is the first Disney animated feature in 29 years to produce a number one of the country song. And what we'd like to do is do a repair job. Yeah. Put at least two songs from Encanto into the show. Cut the finale. Now, mind you, that also means looking at new pyro for the, these two new numbers. It's fine. If they get the survey results they're hoping for, what they'd want to do is immediately pivot and start developing this new material. So the timeline I've been told is as early as this summer. 
fact, might might be a really interesting time to get a room over at the beach club. <laughs> be up around midnight, maybe uh, drinking, drinking some decaf coffee and uh, right, right. getting up for pyro tests at Harmonious. That's it, exactly. But the notion of test the pyro then, test the music then, with the idea that the new improved version of Harmonious would debut for the fall of, of this year. But again, that's all conditional on getting the survey results that they hope. Uh, I would bet money that that's that they're going to get those results. Yeah. Supposedly, if we switch over to the marketing side, especially given that the 50th anniversary really has not caught on the way they had hoped, which that issue kind of got sipped over in the earnings call yesterday. Yeah. But a new promotional campaign for the resort uh, that would be launched this fall that would obviously hype Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, which would also show the Encanto footage from Harmonious right. and tease the soon-to-be-opening Tron Life Cycle Run. Oh, that's right. So if they do, if uh, if Harmonious is reworked for October 1st, 2022, mm-hmm. Guardians will already have opened because that's supposed to open this summer. Mm-hmm. We'll have the Encanto theme stuff in Harmonious. That'll be good. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, they could tease Tron, which would be, I mean, I'm expecting Tron like fall- 2022 early very early 2023 depending on where they are in terms of financials and stuff like that that's it exactly that makes sense so what uh, what two songs would they would they pull from uh (laughs) obviously just because they want to hear ten thousand people around world showcase lagoon all singing we don't talk about bruno right (laughs) so that was the gimme that was we knew that was one song right (laughs) but there is also (laughs) the irony is the ballad from encanto is the song that in fact got nominated or disney presented for best song at this year's academy awards so it's you know in fact that's the thing of entertainment is like uh do we really need to do the ballad because didn't we just get in trouble with someday you know and and more to the point the ballad is also completely in spanish they could say that you know music brings us together as a family Mm -hmm. and then close with uh the family madrigal because that's a that's a that's a bop as the kids say there we go there we go yeah not a bad idea just keep an eye on this and more to the point, if you're at the Beach Club and you hear some pyro in, in August and September, please reach out to Len and myself, okay? <laughs> yeah, definitely let me know. Yep. All right, one last uh, question mm-hmm. from our close personal friend, Chris Cox, mm-hmm. uh, who says, I'm considering a dining package option for Harmonious. On looking at the website, it only seems to offer the Roasting Crown or Spice Road table. Are any of the restaurants available? And if not, are either of those any good? I'm aware that you love the sweet spot. That is the only sp- uh, place that you can actually see everything. So I'm wondering if it's worth just eating someplace else and standing there instead. All right. So Chris, those are the only two right now. And Chris, since you're from London, I'm not sure you think that Rosing Crown is, you know, exotic. Mm-hmm. But Spice Road Table is actually pretty highly rated. So that is option number one. Um, the things I would consider here are this. You know, Number one, do you like this restaurant enough? to pick it just for harmonious. And number two, are you going to eat, order enough food at dinner to justify the cost as opposed to just like, you know, walking around world showcase and eating and then hopping uh, into a spot mm-hmm. for the fireworks. If you wanted to eat dinner somewhere else that gets really good ratings right now, that's Teppan Ito spice Road table, actually number two mm-hmm. uh, via Napoli garden grill, Rosen crown, La Cellier beer garden and La Hacienda. All of those are above average in Epcot. So you could try any one of those and then try and find a spot for Harmonious. The alternative, Jim, is if Harmonious gets the individual lightning lane treatment mm-hmm. between now and then, uh, between now and Chris's uh, visit, I would just buy the individual lightning lane instead of the dinner package. 
That's an interesting idea. Though, by the way, again, just put a, a bug in Chris's ear. Back in November, we did very, very well. There's that spot in front of the Japan Pavilion. Uh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's why I mentioned Teppanito. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because, well, uh, not only that, but we also uh, saw a number of folks who were up on the second floor who had a spectacular view of the lagoon, and you're almost where you should be to see the show. And it, it's worth it alone for the crazy pyro launches right there at the waterfront by Japan. Yeah. But let us know what you decide, Chris. I'd love to hear what you end up with. Yeah, so that might be the uh, the best option. Just go eat at Teppan Ido, mm-hmm. come out of the restaurant, and sitting going down two flights of stairs when you're done, just make a left, mm-hmm. follow the um, second floor railing and walkway out to where it has a good view of World Circus Lagoon and just watch it from there. Killer. All right, Chris, let us know what you uh, end up doing. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of Epcot's Communicore, which closed on January 31st, 1994, to make way for interventions. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. You know what's ironic? A lot of us out there will drop everything to go help someone we care about. I mean, we'll go way out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves that same sort of treatment? Seriously. We all want to be there for friends and family, but but let's be honest here. You can't help those folks if you yourself aren't feeling mentally healthy. That's why BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And if you feel the need for some self-care, well, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. More to the point, BetterHelp is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So why not give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy? As I mentioned a moment ago, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, which is why Disney Dish listeners will get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Disney Dish. Again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Disney Dish. It's the new year, people, a time when we all set goals for ourselves, plan on finally getting around to those tasks that we've been putting off for weeks, maybe even months. And in my case, I am loath to admit this, but I suffer from too many subscription syndrome. When you're an entertainment writer and for work, you need to watch shows on Disney Plus and Netflix and Paramount Plus and Hulu. It's kind of a necessary evil. But that said, one of my goals for 2022 is to thin the herd, which is where Truebill comes in. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgotten about. I know, I know. A lot of companies make it hard to cancel subscriptions. That's what's great about Truebill. They make this process incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. Your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Let me tell you folks, making use of this app can be incredibly lucrative. The average user saves $720 a year by using Truebill. Don't believe me? Listen to what Truebill user Becca L. had to say. Hands down, the best financial app I discovered. In my first week, I opened up $187 in unused reoccurring subscriptions. I'm obsessed. I never want to manage finances without Truebill again. So if you'd like to join the more than 2 million Truebill members who are taking back financial control, go to the App Store or Google Play today and download Truebill today for free. 
Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today with Truebill.com slash Disney Dish. Go right now. Truebill.com slash Disney Dish. It could save you thousands a year. And we're back. All right, Jim, uh, where did we leave off last time? We were talking about John Henson, George Rester, the designer of Comedicore, and, you know, John Hench, who at the time was the senior vice president of White Enterprises, and how they'd made that determination to lower the interior space of Comedicore by right. 30 inches so people outside could actually look over folks' head into the exhibits and the expanse of Epcot beyond. In fact, I've come across a, a wonderful story about how they landed on that 30-inch thing. John, who was actually quite tall, and George went down to the model shop one day and broke out a stepladder, and <laughs> and the two of them literally kept going up and down the steps. You know, the effect of when could they finally see over all the people's heads who were in the model shop? And it, it eventually determined, okay, it's this, it's this step, and then they broke out the tape measure, and it's like thirty inches. Okay, cool. Very low tech, but it worked. But John was incredibly hands on when it came to Comedicore. He wanted this part of Future World to have a huge impact on the public. This part of the park, rather than the attractions, you know, I mean, face it, if you're in Horizons, you look at the world where we're the far off future, where we're living in space, where we're under the sea and sea colonies, or we're, we're flying our cars over orange groves. That's great, but that's the far off future. But I want to talk about the future present. I want to talk about the future that's just over the horizon. And so technologies that people are actually going to be using sometime in the next 5, 10, 20 years. For example, touching a video screen and summing up an Epcot host or hostess who could then make a dinner reservation for you. I love that, by the way. A listener wrote in, I'm sorry, I'm blanking their name, but but talked about how this was actually one of the strongest memories from their family's first visit to Epcot, how their mom oh, totally. stepped up to the video and then began conversing with an Epcot cast member, which again, is very different from how the television at home worked. You know, you, yeah. don't, you don't go up to the screen and touch it and Captain Kangaroo talks to you. No, I remember, uh, you know, going to Epcot with my family mm -hmm. in the mid 80s and knowing that that was the way that you had to make dinner reservations. Mm -hmm. I ran ahead to make a lunch reservation at Italy mm -hmm. for my entire family for that day. And not only that, but I remember the meal at Italy that mm -hmm. my dad loved. Like he was super thrilled with that. Yeah. So using using that back in the days is like one of my best family memories of Epcot. And this is what John was trying to do. He was trying to display stuff as hands-on as possible that blended today's reality with tomorrow's dreams. And in fact, that, that's the thing when he met with would-be sponsors of exhibits for Comunicore. It's like, look, you're going to be working with the Imagineers, but this cannot be something that's in the far future. It has to be a demonstration of a prototype system that is here today. This is also the space that's supposed to make you comfortable with computers. I get all of us who grew up watching 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. this isn't going to help 9,000 on me, is it? But anyway, Hinch couldn't afford to be that, that picky. Communicore was huge. Its two buildings had 267,000 square feet of space that needed to be filled up. 
the next largest structure in all of Epcot was the Land Pavilion, which was 130,000 square feet. Especially as we start to get close to October of 1982, John sometimes had to squint and go, yeah, okay, that, that's sort of future present. <laughs> you get you get less picky as the uh, the amount of space goes up. There we and go. The timeline gets shorter and shorter, right? Well, well, speaking of which, okay, we have the travel port, okay, which was a communicar exhibit that was sponsored by American Express. By the way, American Express got offered this spot in Future World as, as sort of a thank you from Disney Corporate for coming on board as the co-sponsor of American Adventure. And remember, Coca-Cola was the other sponsor. Did I ever tell you about the about the effort that I put in to finding the sponsored by American Express sign for the American Adventure after it was done? No. Like I called the archives, both the American Express and the Disney archives, mm -hmm. looking for the sign because I wanted the sign for my office. Oh. <laughs> Never found it, but uh, yeah. yeah it, anyway. it, either a dumpster out back or some cast member's trunk. Had I known that that was a thing, I, I mean, I, now I mean, now I know exactly who to call, but mm -hmm. 20 years ago, no, I didn't. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, Travelport. Okay. So Travelport in Comitacore, if we think of Future World as a, a face of a clock and put Spaceship Earth in the 12 o'clock position, you travel the clock face, this is basically at where 2 o'clock is located. And this is where visitors to the Walt Disney Resort could get all of their normal American Express services and travel info. You could buy traveler's checks, you could get reservation assistance. But again, remember, American Express Travel Port is located in Comicore and Future World. And Hench was insistent that corporations had to do something future present. So right. have you ever heard of the World Festival Sphere? The World Festival Sphere. Oh, this is the, um, this is the, uh, it's the travel agent thing that was, was it Spaceship Earth? Where was it? Its design was reminiscent of Spaceship Earth. It was a 14 foot in diameter sphere. Travelport was going to be a travel agency of the future where guests could experience various destinations before they book their vacation package. So they, they work with the Imagineers and I'm reading for the actual Epcot Center press release from summer of 82. The sphere was going to be a magic crystal ball that then previewed exotic travel destinations from around the globe. So the concept powering the sphere, both ingenious and kind of simple, say you're thinking of taking your family on a South American adventure. So the way the sphere worked is you'd first tell the attendant that this communicator attraction you wanted to experience the Republic of Columbia, that Epcot host or hostess would then input the proper destination into the computer that powered the sphere. You yep. then stepped inside and for 60 seconds, music and images from that country would then wash over you. And very brave new worldy sounding, don't you think? I remember seeing, was it Morocco? There we go. Here? Yeah. It was, it was like, I came out of it. Yeah. I, my, my parents were doing something in the air. Yeah. I came out of that going like, let's go to Morocco. Morocco looks cool. That's it, exactly. That it was outfitted with all sort of video and uh, elements and theatrical. And the goal, the whole goal of the exhibit was, was, as you described, was to temporarily overwhelm all your senses, make you feel like oh, you yeah. had to go to vacation to this part of the world. You know, I'd forgotten where this was. I thought it was in World Showcase, but no, you're right. It was in Communicore. Yeah. From talking with, with veteran Imagineers, the prototype of the World Sphere, the one they built back in Glendale, initially mm -hmm. had a smellizer element. <sighs> the thing that yes. made you smell the, the sulfur pools and University of Energy, or, or you get that whiff of citrus as you're flying over the orange groves. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the interesting thing, the smellizer aspect of the 
World Sphere got dropped during the test phase because they learned the hard way that when you put the smell of spicy tapas, which was supposed to make you think, oh, I want to go to sunny Spain, mm -hmm. but it would linger in this 14-foot diameter sphere, which then was kind of a nasal disconnect when you, you sent people in who wanted to experience the green forests of Canada or the... <laughs> It's like, why, why, why am I smelling? They've got, they've got hummus in Canada? <laughs> that was no. That was, so, all right. <laughs> I remember that. That was a fantastic idea. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it a lot. And remember, you know, the whole notion of future tech. So same thing. We're, we're still getting people used to the idea of touchscreen stuff. So do you remember in the travel port uh, thing that America Express did, they had five different vacation stations where as you're waiting for your chance to get into the World Festival sphere, you could kill time by standing in front of a television and, okay, I want to look at a 60-second thing that would tell you about a specific vacation destination. By the way, we have not talked about what's at the one o'clock position in Community Core, which was Epcot Central, not Epcot Center, but Epcot Central. Oh, this is the, the computer thing. Yes. I was fascinated by this. Like, honest to God, I, I remember seeing this in like 84 and mm -hmm. thinking, I, yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Was it the show that hooked you or the six? No, no, no. It, the, was the, it, was the, it was the room. There we go. Okay. Yeah. The All computer right. room. Yeah. You've worked computers for much of your life. And the problem with this show is you come from a pre-show space, which has six hands-on displays, and you take a step up because, again, you're looking down into a computer room. And, you know, okay, you're there in front of that wide bank of windows looking down at a bunch of beige rectangles. And then they start the Pepper's Ghost effect, which yep. if you talk about the version in 84, you had the young woman walking along the top of the computers and yep. talking yep. to yep. Yeah. Okay, the early version of the show, the Astuter Computer Review, featured a song that was written by the Sherman Brothers. Yep. It also featured a performance by Early the Pearly, a Cockney character who was played by Ken Jennings, and we can't let a show go by without a Sondheim reference. <laughs> Apparently not these days. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, but Ken Jennings was actually in the original Broadway cast of Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. He played Tobias, the boy in the show who sang, nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around, not like those murderous animatronics over at Westworld, but we won't talk about those. <laughs> God, that's a great analogy. That's funny. Yeah, but trying to make computers, the, the, again, you're looking down into a server room, which is raised up by two and three feet because you have to blow all that cold air under them. Raised floors, yeah. And, and you're looking at all these disk packs and, you know, and it is the least sexy space in the entire planet. So you you say that, Jim, it, and I, I'm telling you, I, I saw that mm -hmm. and was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I loved everything about it like i i we're talking about this now and in in my head mm -hmm. i can still see the scene wow that i saw that's how much of an imprint that had on me i loved it you say that but it's like i've seen the surveys and one of the reasons the original astuter computer show it was one of the very first things to close at the original version of epcot it was closed by january of 1984 and that's what i they actually i actually missed it because i think my first trip was february of 84 there you go you got the second try at a show I got it. Yeah. The, uh, but the funny thing is the, you've heard the Astuter computer song, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I'll, it's I'll called send this a break, big memory lock an elephant. An elephant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's this weird, to your point, Cockney 
sort of vaudeville yeah. review song yeah. in a computer room. Yeah. In, in which, I mean, it's a memorable song, don't get me wrong, but not sure it sort of went. I mean, it didn't, it didn't not go. It was, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like ketchup, I guess, ketchup flavored potato chips. Like if you like it, that's great. Okay. Okay. But Disney's own surveys. The thing is that they they had a hit out in the in the pre-show area, it, and in, in fact, it was one of the hands-on displays. In fact, they actually had people who would not go into the show that would stand in line for their chance to do this. And it was basically it was a demonstration of CAD design, a computer-aided design. Oh yeah. Yeah, so remember, again, this is like 84. So I remember being like super impressed with touch screen yep. computers. Like I thought this was the most amazing thing. And I remember, uh, I'm not proud of this. Mm-hmm. I remember putting my eyeballs as close to that screen as possible mm-hmm. to try and figure out how they were making it work. Like, like, was there an electrified grid sitting over the screen mm-hmm. that, you know, somehow like made electrical connections where your finger was touching? Like I was trying to figure out how it all, it all worked. Yeah. So, I mean, and then the CAD stuff. Oh. Was I mean not only that, but uh, if you link it into the CAD stuff that remember that used to be mm-hmm. in imagination mm-hmm. in ImageWorks. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. But the exhibit here that people would literally let the show a group go into the yep. show for their opportunity was you could build a workable roller coaster. You could select pieces yep. of track yourself, and then once you did the entire layout, the monitor would then play the coaster point of view shot of you know you riding the coaster you just designed and people yep. absolutely love this in fact eventually epcot computer central just they were getting so poorly attended and some of it was the fact of where it was positioned i mean it was on the left side of the park in the northeast quadrant and you know i don't need to tell you from how people experience disney parks if you're on the yeah. left you don't really get experiences people go into the park and by the end of the day, people were just, I want to get out of Epcot. I want to go home. Yeah. And, and the thing is, too, it's not a ride. For a certain subset of nerds like mm-hmm. like us, mm-hmm. I guess everybody listening to this show, mm-hmm. yeah, we probably ate that up. But for, you know, sure. 80% of the people that went in, it was probably like, well, that's interesting, but mm-hmm. maybe not. So you had this one exhibit at this underattended attraction at Epcot in its communicore section. But this weird spike, and we love this, we want this. And so we jump ahead to June of 1998 to Disney Quest opens, and we get Cyberspace Mountain. The key difference here is, once again, guests can get in line. They can set in front of a touchscreen computer. They can assemble their own coaster. But the difference is this time, they now get to ride it. They get to climb into a capsule and physically experience their coaster. One of the things I love about Disney is that's a cool idea. We need to circle back on that at some point. And they did again a decade later with some of all thrills in Epcot, right? Yeah, they did. They did. Which is design your own roller coaster and then get it in. And also, (laughs) that's in Future World. So, yeah, that is super interesting. One more installment here. We're going to wrap up the series with next week's uh, Disney Dish. We're going to walk through the rest of Punicore and find out which aspects of this future world space still survive today. By the way, uh, Jim, I know I've talked about it on on the uh, on the show before, but mm-hmm. uh, for people who maybe uh, are, are new listeners, mm-hmm. when American Express used to sponsor the American Adventure mm-hmm. and the Travel Port, I spoke with and I, and I worked at American Express for twenty some years. I actually got to talk to the people who were stationed in Epcot for American Express. Ooh. And Jim, it's difficult. There are two jobs in this world mm-hmm. that are the absolute 
most difficult to get. Mm -hmm. The second most difficult job to get in the entire world mm -hmm. is Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, right? That's that's an exceptionally difficult job to get. Mm -hmm. But the, actually, the most the most difficult job to get in the entire world, and everybody knows this, mm -hmm. is head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, and I'm not joking here. So, dating back to 1966, mm -hmm. fewer people have been head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers than Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. That's how difficult it is to be. Okay, but. Being the American Express representative at Travelport mm -hmm. is like third on this list. And here's how I know, right? So mm -hmm. when I was with American Express, every year you'd get a performance appraisal, right? Mm -hmm. And you'd be ranked from like one to five in two categories. One was your goals, like whatever, whatever performance goals you had for the year. And the other one was on leadership. And for American Express, one was the best number you could get. Mm -hmm. So you could get a one in leadership or a one in goals, or you could get a one, one, but it was extremely difficult to be rated one. Essentially you had to be in the top 2% of American express employees in that particular category to get a one, right? So to get a one, one means you're like the top 1% of the top 1%, right? I achieved that exactly once in my 23 years with American Ooh. express, right? Okay. Double ones, very mm -hmm. difficult to do. Okay. Right? So I was talking to the, um, to the employees who were working in the travel port one day, I'm like, mm -hmm. how do you get this job? Mm -hmm. And so the woman that I talked to said that before the, you know, she had submitted her application and in the application, you had to put your ratings for the last seven years. So first of all, you had to be with the company for seven years mm -hmm. to even be considered for the job. Okay. Right. This woman that I, that I talked to said she had been a one, one the last seven years, um. which essentially meant she was the single best employee at American Express and basically picked that job as the thing she wanted to do. Like like my mom, who was also worked for American Express and who was an excellent employee, was a one-one a couple of times, mm -hmm. two, maybe three. This woman that was at the travel port was seven times. Seven. Literally the highest performing employee I've ever met in my entire life. And so I asked her, like, okay, you know, and um, you know, when the when the the sponsorship ended, when American Express mm -hmm. ended its sponsorship mm -hmm. with, with with Disney, I'm like, what are you gonna do? And she's like, Oh, I have to quit because nothing will ever top this. <laughs> and then she did. She retired. <laughs> wow. But but if you want a job like that as a mm -hmm. third party, that's how difficult it was to get that job. It was basically impossible. Boy, she really dodged the spicy tapas bullet. <laughs> I think she really actually she actually got me into a uh, to a my, my sister and I into a dinner at the Rotunda in the American Adventure. Oh, that's another topic. Okay. Anyway. All right. We'll, we'll definitely have to talk about that at some point. Fantastic uh, story, Jim. A lot of memories here. This is great. Cool, 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 cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please send it over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the second half of our story on Disneyland's Flying Saucers. On next week's show, we're going to wrap up Communicore. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, whose theme, The Kitchen, a multimodal upgrade, including fold-into-the-wall workstations, spice racks with USB chargers, and Zoom-friendly noise-canceling wall treatments will be featured at the Billings Spring Home Improvement Show on Saturday, March 5th at the Metro Park Expo Center in beautiful downtown Billings, Montana. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes at Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. <laughs>